Thank you for your welcome. And I think I said it at your camp uh, earlier in the year that when we visit you folk, we feel at one with you. <coughs> we, we really do. And you reminded me, Com, that that started several years ago when we had a visiting speaker from the US visit our fellowship in Ballarat. And um, having Navid, who uh, gave us his testimony, spend time with us in Ballarat. Now, Navid is visiting Josh's. Where are you, Josh? Josh's family, uh, all the way from Dubai. And um, almost as soon as I met Navid, I felt a oneness with him. Uh, and uh, that, 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 I believe, is a real testimony that we are all part of the one family. And we certainly feel it when we visit you folk here. We're all of the one mind. We're all serving the one God. And it's great to speak in, in a, a building like this. Uh, those of you who have come to Ballarat, uh, um, come to a rather humble establishment, but uh, the church is not the building. Amen. The church is you and me. One of our members, Paul, said before the service started that um, it's good to come to a place and not have to put up the chairs. <laughs> That's what we do each Sunday at Ballarat. We have to put the chairs out, get rid of the tables that fill the hall and do the reverse uh, at the end of the service. But it certainly keeps us humble. But you have one, there is one thing in common. We can never fill the front row at our church. <laughs> it's good to see that you have that problem too. <laughs> but really, we, uh, we, uh, I think already we've, we've learned something from you folk and I trust that that will continue to go on. We are truly brothers and sisters in the one family. Lynn and I visited uh, overseas several times and you know when you meet with brothers and sisters 12,000 kilometres away, we're all part of the one family and I believe that's the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of each one of us. It's, it's something that man can't manufacture, it's something that the Holy Spirit brings to us and uh, energises us with. So it's good to be uh, with like-minded people and as somebody said earlier, it's good to be in the house of the Lord worshipping and praising the one God. Before we start, can we pray? Lord, I agree with my brother Werner when he prayed earlier that it's through your word and your Holy Spirit that you will bring about change in each one of us. And we ask, Father, that the word that we hear this morning and the Holy Spirit will do their work in each one of us, Father, to mould us and shape us into the vessels that you want. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come, I thought you were going to steal my thunder somewhat when you led us in communion and you mentioned about uh, witnessing at Flinders Street Station. We do live in dark days, don't we? I'll start with a question. How many of us read a newspaper, watched a news program on TV or online or heard a radio news report in the last 24 hours? I think most of us would. It's, our lives are saturated, if, if we allow it, our lives are saturated with news. Second question. How many of us have turned off the news in the last 24 hours? I've been guilty of that. There's not a lot of good news out there. So much of our news is discouraging, not uplifting 
or even very hopeful. And really, it's not rocket science to conclude that we live in times of rapid change on many fronts. Technology, politics, moral values, commerce and so on. And yes, in some ways in the so-called church. Would you agree with that? There is change in the church and we have to be very careful about where we go with that change. I believe that we ought not to be like the proverbial ostrich. I think we have a responsibility that we don't bury our head in the sand and pretend that change is not occurring or that the world is becoming more problematic. I think as we, we as the church have a responsibility to keep ourselves informed of what's happening out there. But at the same time, it's imperative that we stand firm on the basics of our faith and also continue to become mature believers. And Marilyn encouraged us to do that, that we need to stand firm. We live in perilous times and we really do need to stand firm. But at the same time, we need to allow God to grow us to become the mature vessels that he wants. So today I want to look briefly at those two aspects, standing firm and going on to maturity. Now the Ballarat people will have to forgive me for this because they've heard this before at various times, but I think it's so important to revisit those basic principles of standing firm and going on to maturity and allowing God to mould and shape us into the vessels that he wants. If you've got your Bibles there, let's have a look at a couple of scriptures before we start. And the first one is in Ephesians 4, verses 14 to 15. Ephesians 4, verses 14 to 15. <coughs> I'll make reference to the New King James and the Amplified at different times. But reading from Ephesians 4, verses 14 to 15. It says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. And I'd underline that last few phrases. May grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Another scripture, turn on to Titus, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. Titus 1 verse 9, I'm reading from the Amplified this time. He must hold fast to the sure and trustworthy word of God as he was taught it, so that he may be able both to give stimulating instruction and encouragement in sound or wholesome doctrine and to refute and convict those who contradict and oppose it, showing the wayward their error. And I'd underline this part in that particular verse, must hold fast to the sure and trustworthy word of God. Let's look at both of those passages in their context. In the passage from Ephesians, Paul is speaking about the importance of all parts of the body of Christ working together towards the goal of growing up in all things into him who is the head. And secondly, Paul is instructing Titus on the importance of ensuring that elders of the church are fully qualified. But I believe we ought to be fully qualified too, elders or not. 
we as members of Christ's body need to be equally qualified and therefore need to hold fast to the sure and trustworthy word of God as we have been taught. How do we stand firm? I'm going to talk briefly about three ways of standing firm and ensure that we're growing up spiritually and moving from, as somebody once put it, spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And these three ways are the Word, prayer and fellowship. Nothing new about that, but three important elements that should colour our lives. Studying the Word, prayer and fellowship. Now on the Word, somebody once said, this is interesting, Christians used to be known as people of one book. Sure, they read, studied and shared other books but the book they cared about more than all others combined was the Bible. They memorised it, meditated on it, talked about it and taught it to others. We don't do that anymore and in a very very real sense we're starving ourselves to death. Think about that. Let's have a look at two references that underscore the importance of and the need for being one who is Bible literate. Are we Bible literate this morning? 2 Timothy 3, and I'm sure this is familiar to you. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17, (coughs) talks about the power of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, and I'm reading from the Amplified. Every Scripture is God-breathed, and Lynn spoke before about those words in everything and all. Every scripture is God-breathed, given by his inspiration and profitable for instruction, for reproof and conviction of sin, for correction of error and discipline in obedience and for training in righteousness, holy living, in conformity to God's will in thought, purpose and action. Verse 17. Why? So that the man of God may be complete and proficient, well-fitted and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every scripture is God-breathed. Turn across to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. And again I'll read from the Amplified. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. What a marvellous passage talking about the power of the word. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energising and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life or the soul and the immortal spirit and of joints and marrow of the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analysing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. Let's turn back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 as we reread that again. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 and again from the Amplified. Every scripture is God-breathed, given by his inspiration and profitable for instruction, for reproof and conviction of sin, for correction of error and discipline and obedience and for training in righteousness, in holy living, in conformity to God's will and thought purpose and action, so that the man of God may be complete and proficient, well fitted and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's spend a few moments having a look at some key words in that passage. 
from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Some adjectives first, some words that describe the word of the Lord. It says at the outset that every scripture is God-breathed. Not just some, every scripture. And it behoves us to take notice of that. You either take the lot or you leave it well alone. Every scripture is God-breathed. Not just some verses that may appeal to us, but every scripture is from God himself. A second descriptive word about the word in that passage is profitable. God's word is profitable. There's benefit to be gained from scripture. It has a very real and practical outcome for the lives that we lead in the here and now. In verse 17 it says, The believer is made complete, proficient, well-fitted and equipped. We need look no further than God's word to ensure that we're ready and able to lead a life which reflects his love. Now what about some of the functions of the word, some of the doing things, if you like, in that particular passage? It tells us, and there are several words to describe these functions, the word instructs, it reproves, it convicts, it corrects, it disciplines and it trains. As God's children who are still in school, there are times for all of us when we need instruction, reproving, convicting, correcting, discipline and training and sometimes they're not pleasant times at all. But because we're still kids in God's school, there are times when he might have to wrap us on the knuckles as it were. Not always pleasant. We're a work in progress. None of us has reached perfection and we need to use the Bible, the maker's handbook, to do its work on us and to keep us growing in the way in which he desires. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. And Hebrews 4.12, can we read that again? Hebrews 4.12 is very similar in vain in the context of its passage. Hebrews 4.12, again from the Amplified. <coughs> For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energising and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life of the soul and the immortal spirit and of joints and marrow of the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analysing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. We can't hide. Some adjectives or describing words from that passage. The word that God speaks is alive. This is a book like no other. It's full of life and it points to an eternal life for those who would believe. It's full of power. And this is not just man-made power, it's supernatural power. The word of God is full of power, something that we mortals are unable to manufacture ourselves. We can't do it. The Lord only can do it. It's sharp and that can be... <laughs> rather cutting at times and rather painful when the word of God cuts into our thoughts and our motives and our way of living. It cuts more than one way as it describes there. It's a two-edged sword. It divides truth from error. What about some of the functions of the word? Well, there are five functions that I find in that passage. It penetrates. Can't hide from him. It exposes. It sifts. It analyses, it judges. 
No book written by the wisest of men could penetrate, expose, sift, analyse and judge in the way in which God's Word does, if we allow it. Now, like prayer, the study of God's Word needs a disciplined approach in its application. Discipline has much to do with how we use our time, the time that's given to us. And we're all given the same amount of time, 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week and so on. Some simple but important questions that we need to ask ourselves continually, I believe. For example, do we spend more time watching television than reading, studying, memorising God's Word? What priority is God's Word in our life? Do we spend more time on social networking sites than reading God's Word? Do we spend more time playing video games than reading God's Word? Just a few questions to prompt us about our priorities. Where is God's Word in our list of priorities? Where is the studying and the meditating of God's Word in our priorities? So much for the Word of the Lord. The second of the ways in which we can ensure that we're standing firm is that of prayer and its part in our daily life. Now, I noticed in your bulletin that you quoted 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, which talks about the, the importance of prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Let me read it to you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Countless volumes have been written about prayer. You can go into Christian bookshops and see rows and rows of books on prayer. There are three simple words that I tend to uh, use in my thought life about the importance of prayer. Don't read the countless volumes of books, just do it. Get down on your knees and do it. Philippians 4.6, let's have a look at Philippians 4.6. Again from the Amplified. Do not fret or have any anxiety about anything. Do not fret or have any anxiety about anything but in every circumstance and in everything. I like those sort of um, big words. Do not fret or have any anxiety about anything, but in every circumstance and in everything, by prayer and petition, definite requests with thanksgiving, continue to make your wants known to God. We have to be careful here that we distinguish between needs and wants. What we think we want. God doesn't always give us. Now a few points about what prayer is not. I think there are some misconceptions out there about what prayer is. These are some points that I think are relevant when when we think about what prayer is not. Prayer is not a religious technique for persuading God or a higher power into giving us what we want. It should not be God having his arm twisted to get what we want. It should not involve us asking him to bless our works without any effort on our part to seek out his will on a particular matter. Secondly, prayer is not an effort to drum up faith. Some believe that the key to answered prayer is to believe that the answer will come if one's belief is strong enough. 
This is where faith is placed in the effort put into prayer rather than faith being placed in God alone. have to be careful on that one. Prayer also is not a positive affirmation where the belief is that we can speak something into existence, for example, the name and claim it movement, where the belief is that if I lay claim to something often enough, what I want will come about. God's will is not necessarily considered in those instances. On the other hand, what is prayer? Well, as I said, we could go on and on about prayer. We could write books about it. But a couple of points I want to make about what prayer is. Prayer is made on the understanding or acknowledgement that first, God is in control, irrespective of what our senses tell us. Do we trust God when all the evidence out there is telling us that things are running out of control? Can we say amen to Romans 8.28 that says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Not always easy to grab hold of that and stand on that promise. But it says we know that, some things. No, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. God knows what's best for us and we're his children. Or are we like the spoiled brat who throws a tantrum when things don't go his or her own way? Are we satisfied, are we happy when God has his way with us? Or are we like the spoiled child who turns his back, takes his bat and ball and goes home? I hope we're the former. Also, prayer is an exercise in aligning our will with his. And therefore it's important to know what his will is. Can we be like Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane was absolutely honest with God in telling him that he didn't want to go through with what lay ahead but surrendered his will to that of the Father and said, not my will but your will be done. The last of those three rocks in which we stand firm is fellowship. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. There's a simple injunction in there, a very plain and simple one. It says in the New King James, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. About two years ago, our fellowship went through, well, in my eyes, it was a bit of a crisis when some of our longest members left, longest serving members left to go elsewhere. And I did a bit of a panic and I thought, what do we do about this? What do we do about the fact that some of our members have gone off to other fellowships? And after thinking about it briefly, I became determined to stay the game, stay the way, stand firm. And as my wife said to me earlier this morning, God will build his church. Jesus will build the church. We have to be careful and make sure that we're in his will. He'll take care of all of those things. But it is important to continue to fellowship. And there are benefits to be gained from fellowshipping with other believers. One of them is accountability. 
We're accountable to each other. And why is that? Well, we have a responsibility to others in the body. We're codependent and have functions, I believe, assigned by God to perform those things in order to bring Christ's body, the church, to maturity. I believe that each one of us has a unique assignment to undertake, an assignment specifically tailored for you. Nobody else. Only you can undertake that assignment. So it's important that we stick together and we build the body of Christ as God does the work. Another benefit of fellowshipping together is one of protection and discernment. None of us has it all. We need each other to watch out for the other's spiritual welfare. This responsibility is demonstrated in the parent-child relationship. We do have a responsibility to watch out for the spiritual welfare of each other. You know the old classic illustration of the need for fellowship is the instance where a single glowing coal on a cold hearth will soon die out, whereas a coal surrounded by other similar coals will glow for much longer, even if the hearth is cold. Don't become that single coal on the hearth. Ensure that you remain part of a caring, compassionate, loving community of fellow believers and continue to grow or mature as a vital member of the body of Christ. Corrie ten Boom said it well. This is what Corrie ten Boom said about prayer and fellowship and reading the Bible. She said this, When a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. It goes up a notch. When a Christian stops studying the Bible, the devil just doesn't smile, he laughs. When he stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. She put it beautifully, I thought. When a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When he stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. When he stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. Now, what about going on to maturity? Did you know that growing spiritually is expected and mandated by God? He doesn't want us to remain as children. He wants us to grow up. And as someone put it, he wants us to move from the nursery to the battlefield. Turn to Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, verses 12 to 14. Ephesians 4, 12 to 14. And again from the Amplified. God's intention was the perfecting and full equipping of the saints, his consecrated people, that they should do the work of ministering toward building up Christ's body. He expects that of us. He mandated us. We are to grow up. He loves us too much to let us remain as infantile or immature believers. Just as a parent wants for their child to leave the nappies, the crawling and other marks of childhood behind and grow to mature adulthood, so God doesn't want us to remain as children. He wants us to not only enjoy what he has for us in the here and now, but he wants us to take our unique place in the church and so fulfil our function, whatever that may be, in the fellowship in which he's placed us. What are the marks of the mature believer? There are several characteristics. There are lots of them, but I'm only going to mention a few this morning. A few markers to mark us out as maturing believers. And it's important to remember that maturity in Christians living is not necessarily linked to one's chronological age, got nothing to do do with our chronological age, our spiritual maturity, one's academic qualifications, one's popularity ratings, appearance, 
possessions and so on. They're markers that the world puts on, but they're not ours. Let's examine the maturing process in two areas, in our vertical relationship with God and secondly, our horizontal relationships with each other. The maturing Christian will show a greater desire to know more of God and his character through his word. We should show a growing desire to get to know him better. This desire is a little like a couple in love who yearn to spend time with each other. Quite true. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 from the New King James. A reminder that we need to be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Question, on what are we feeding spiritually? Are we leaving behind spiritual baby food, if you like to call it that, and moving on to meatier food? We've got to remember that we're at different stages of maturity in our walk and that from time to time, just as we're doing today, I believe, we need to revisit elementary principles or the basics of our faith as we need to be reminded of the foundations on which our faith stands. We do need to come back from time to time and remind ourselves of things like salvation, baptism and so on. A second mark of the maturing Christian is that the maturing Christian remains unmoved in his or her trust of God no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Someone once remarked that mature Christians don't ride a spiritual roller coaster. They're consistent. Are we consistent in our walk with the Lord? Do we let the highs and the lows affect our faith? Mature Christians can certainly celebrate the mountaintop moments, but they don't rely on those moments to sustain their faith and trust in God. Again, the mature Christian can say with certainty that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. The mature Christian retains a childlike sense of wonder and awe at his creation and redemption, what he's done for us on the cross, about which Cole reminded us this morning. As adults, we tend to sometimes exhibit a ho-hum attitude to the world around us and even in our walk with God. Mature Christians have a childlike nature. They don't easily become bored. They celebrate. They laugh. They have a curiosity. They have a childlike trust in their Heavenly Father. Perhaps that's what Jesus had in mind when he said in Matthew 18 and verse 3. Matthew 18 verse 3. Assuredly I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And lastly, one of the marks of a maturing Christian in his relationship with the Lord is that he remains unperturbed by situations out of his control. Going back to what I said about the news, we're living in dark days. The news abounds with stories of man's cruel nature and his disregard of others. Some examples are the atrocities committed by ISIS and other terrorist organisations. What does the mature Christian do when he hears that sort of news? Well, he doesn't allow that news to derail his faith or his life. Mature Christians don't worry about and get hysterical about situations out of their control. 
what do they do? They pray diligently, acknowledge that God is in control and that he is sovereign. Not easy to do at times. They don't waste time on conspiracy theories or sensationalised news stories. So much from our vertical relationship with the Lord. What about our horizontal relationships with each other? We need to demonstrate God's love, not only to ourselves and our fellow believers, but family, colleagues, friends and even strangers we meet. We need to become more Christ-like. Turn to Galatians 5, 22 and 23 where it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. This is probably a verse that we all know off by heart. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. What a great checklist, if you like, of attributes for us to use in evaluating our growth to maturity. Are we displaying those fruits of the Spirit? We can't manufacture them ourselves. They can only come from God. Do you ever wonder if God ever gets to be like the exasperated parent who thinks, I wish that child of mine would grow up and stop from throwing his tantrums? I'm sure he does with each one of us from time to time. How do we look at others? Do we see others as threats, as nuisances, as ones to be tolerated, as competitors, as wasting our time or do we see others through the eyes of Jesus as being in need of forgiveness, in need of his love, in need of a security that the world can't give, in need of knowing that they belong to someone? And boy, oh boy, doesn't the world need that sort of love? But we can only do it if we look at others in the world through his eyes, not our own eyes, his eyes. For example, are we slow to react or do we fly off the handle or do we try to understand the motives behind others' behaviour and put ourselves in their shoes? And lastly, the mature Christian doesn't compare his self or herself with others. God has a unique place for each one of us. It's no good me comparing myself with somebody else. Our culture is obsessed with outward appearances, isn't it? Just pick up any popular magazine and note the priority placed on looks, possessions, reputation, popularity and bank balances. Our worth is not determined by our rating in the popularity stakes or the beauty pageant. We are precious in the eyes of God. We are made worthy in God's eyes through what Colm reminded us about this morning, the cross. We're only worthy because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Spiritually mature Christians realise that reaching their full potential does not come from looking horizontally at the world but looking vertically to God. <coughs> in conclusion... I've covered only some of those areas in which we must stand firm and as we allow God to mould us in his own way to become the mature vessels he so desires. Let's not neglect the exercise of prayer, the study of the word and being committed to a group of fellow believers, fellowship. Yes, we do live in critical times. Black is no longer black. White is no longer white and there's a lot of grey out there and unfortunately there's a lot of grey in the 
the so-called church today. If we're to allow God to use us to win others to Jesus and build his church, we must continue to grow and stand firm against the onslaught of the opposition coming our way. And we can expect more of that opposition, I believe. So, let's all agree with Paul where he says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14. I'll finish here. Paul says to the Corinthians, and it's also applicable to us, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Amen. Thank you, Tom.